You're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. Let me describe a scenario that will be familiar to many of you. You're working in a smaller hospital, perhaps at an ER or an ICU, and your patient clearly needs a specialty your facility doesn't have. What do you do? Did you ever think you would use a robo-specialist? It's called telemedicine, and it's here to stay. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. James Marson, an associate professor at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. James Marson is a pediatric intensivist by day, but he's also the pediatric critical care director, Pediatric Telemedicine Center for Health and Technology. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Marson. My pleasure. Thank you. So we're going to discuss telemedicine as a way to bring the consultant to the bedside. First of all, tell us, tell our audience, how did you get involved with all this? Well, I must say I'm, I'm kind of a technophile. I have an engineering undergraduate degree, and when I came to UC Davis nine years ago, the institution had really invested in the development of telemedicine. So I think it's both my interest as well as the, the institutional strengths here. Also, because I practice in pediatric critical care, it's a very regionalized subspecialist, and so it goes well to reaching out to other community hospitals that don't have pediatric subspecialty services. Okay, so for our audience, first of all, what is telemedicine, and what is that capable of? Well, there's actually a couple of definitions of telemedicine, but in general, it's the delivery of health care over a distance using technology, typically telecommunications, to interface the provider and the patient receiving the care. And what it's capable of, that it's really a long, long list. What most people think about when they think of telemedicine is just video conferencing. So a doctor, a specialist on one side, on the hub side, and then the remote provider, the, typically a generalist on the remote side with the patient. And the three of them can sit together with a consultation, see each other, talk to each other live. And it's a typical video conferencing scenario. But telemedicine is also encompassing other technologies such as store and forward where a digital echo or optho exam can be done, stored, and sent over the internet, and then a specialist can read that at some later time. Now, was the first introduction of this into clinical practice, we've all been in moonlighting situations where you got x-rays or CAT scans, and we learned there wasn't always your friendly neighborhood radiologist around to read them, so they were sent electronically to other hospitals. Was that part of the beginning? Yes, you're exactly right. The use of it in teleradiology is its standard of care now, for sure. And I think that the other applications of telemedicine will become the standard of care. But you're absolutely right. The first use of it was in the radiology world, where images are transmitted now all over the world. So who should really take credit for this, uh, IT or the radiologist who didn't want to come to the hospital? <laughs> well, probably both, I think. The technology is there. I mean, certainly there's a lot of need out there that this technology can fill that need. And there's also a lot of companies out there, great, great technology, that really the clinical need isn't there yet. So you just have to be leery at what you're hearing about or about what you're using or thinking about using to make sure that it's filling a clinical need and not it's not a push from technology. How was it used at first in clinical practice? Well, that varies depending upon site. Different people have started off with different situations. Some people have just started off with clinic-based telemedicine, as I described, the specialists and the remote provider and patient on the other end. 
we here at UC Davis started a fetal monitoring program at a remote hospital so that our OBGYNs could help monitor the strips of women in labor and the babies at a remote hospital where there were family practitioners that just wanted the eyes and ears of a OBGYN. So how did that work? What information were they getting at the other facility? They were getting the strips. You were getting the strips from the facility, and, and what else? Right. So this being, what, 12 years ago, it was a basic form. We had the monitor on our end, and it was actually the pressure monitor and the fetal scalp monitor for the heart rate on our end. And if, there were, if we noticed an issue on our end looking at the monitor, we would call them by old-fashioned telephone. So it's evolved since then. So what roles are you using it now at UC Davis, for example? The most common use nationwide is in the application of the outpatient consultation, as I mentioned, but it's opening up a huge arena in inpatient consultations. For example, we see children that are admitted to a community hospital to their ward that are being managed by pediatricians or family practitioners that want to talk to a specialist, a pediatric specialist. And this is true for the adult medicine side too. So now there's the inpatient consultation model and it's being used in the operating rooms, so both for education and consultation. So a surgeon doing a case can have somebody looking over his or her shoulder at a remote location. These surgeries or consultations are broadcast to medical students, to other providers to show them how to do this. It's entered our world here at UC Davis with teleinterpreting, so our interpreters are seeing patients and translating all over the medical campus from a specialized site. In New York, they're doing daycare centers. There's home telemedicine, so monitoring homebound patients or hospice patients. Almost anywhere medicine is practiced, this technology can be used. Have you encountered any limitations or places where they thought it would be effective and it didn't work out? Or is the technology there? It's just got to be supported. The technology for the hardware, for the equipment, is there, I think. It's getting better and less expensive as time goes on, which is good because that's often a barrier for the smaller uh, hospitals. The other issue is often telecommunications. So the way that we're hooked up at remote locations is either typically by a fractionated T1 line or ISDN, but more and more people are making these connections just using the internet. So you'll need to have at least some sort of a high-speed internet to be able to transmit audio and visual over these distances. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Jim Marson, and we're discussing telemedicine, bringing the specialist to the bedside. Tell us, Jim, what's the first reaction from practitioners in small hospital? How do they feel about this when the idea is introduced? That's a very good question. I think, generally speaking, they're open to it. Often they're very excited, and the ones that are excited are the ones with the PDAs on on their hips. But, to be honest, there's often practitioners that have been practicing in remote or isolated or underserved areas for long periods of time, and they're very comfortable and very capable at doing what they do. So the concept of bringing in a specialist sticking our nose in their business can sometimes turn them the wrong way. So it does vary, and I must say that the people that are more recently out of medical school or out of training or that are using an electronic medical record, for example, or that use electronic devices like nasopharyngoscopes, those are the group of clinicians that are more open to the use of the technology. The other thing that we've learned is, is while there are skeptics 
after the first few times that they start to use it, they do really like it and they are able to incorporate it into their practice and become more comfortable with it. That's just what I was going to ask you. Do the people who are resistant, if their director brings it in anyhow, do they learn to overcome that resistance and apply it sensibly to their practice? Yes, yes. There's a couple of situations where groups of physicians have not been so open to the concept while the, while the remote health system is, but once they realize that, hey, we're here to provide a consultation, we're not here trying to steal patients or anything like that, then they use it more and more and they're open to this open to the model. You know, many of us have done moonlighting at some point in our life. And uh, certainly when I was younger, my enthusiasm probably exceeded my experience. And so I was particularly interested in its role in trauma. Can you tell us something about the system in Vermont? So there are a couple of places in the country. Uh, Vermont is an excellent example, also in Arizona, where level two trauma units will have, level one or level two trauma units will have a connection to a tertiary or quaternary trauma center so that when a trauma patient comes in, they often will have ceiling-mounted cameras where the hub physician or specialist trauma surgeon is able to visualize the whole trauma resuscitation as it goes on. That's been an excellent resource for them because it's it's really somebody standing back from it. You know, once just we can all admit the problems with this, but if we have our hands and minds entangled in a process, you know, like running a resuscitation, it's often good to step back and be able to look with a bird's eye view. The ability to have another specialist in the room watching what's going on is is always a good thing. Yeah, that's very interesting. They actually, in uh, Ryder Trauma Center in Miami, where I was, they actually did that. They, for QA purposes, they had experienced trauma nurses come in and audit a trauma room and their observations, everything from technique to washing their hands to wearing masks and you know universal precautions to procedures was really instrumental in educating the residents and sometimes even the attendings. That's for sure. That can go both on live now and looked at retrospectively, like you're saying, for QA. I understand one of the most advanced systems is 35 miles above the Arctic Circle in Alaska. Can you tell us something about that? I'm not sure of the specific application that you're talking about, to be honest, but I do know that telemedicine is used in every single state in the United States. Canada is a big user of it. One of the issues that once you get to more remote remote locations, like the Arctic, is telecommunications. And typically, they have to rely on satellite transmission. It's currently a very expensive way of doing it, but it really makes it possible to have telemedicine at any location. We've experimented with it here in the Office of Emergency Services in the state of California. If there's a scene accident, if there's an emergency at a schoolyard, for example, or out in some remote location, we have the ability to drop a system where a satellite can be built out of a suitcase and you could have a triage system and telecommunications with medical peripherals hooked up really at any location in the world. So there's implications there for disaster medicine. Yes, exactly. How do patients and their families react to this electronic interaction? That's a very good question. We've been collecting data for more than 10 years on parent satisfaction for children and patient satisfaction for the adults. And generally speaking, they really like it, especially if their alternative is to drive long distances. We have the the consultation experience from the patient standpoint. The satisfaction with the care is very comparable to the care that if they were to get it in person. And if you ask them about the distance and the ease, more than 95% of them 
want to come back and do the consultation again over telemedicine versus having to drive to the centralized location and have to take off work for all of that, for example. Ever gotten any negative feedback? Yes, I think it's more so that's specialty dependent. For example, rheumatologists, sports medicine, the doctors that really need to feel joints and palpating is very important. Those consultations, there's bigger issues than there are, for example, with dermatology where they can images can be transmitted or psychiatry. The biggest three applications in the outpatient setting in the United States are dermatology, psychiatry, and endocrinology. And endocrinology is mostly the review of the labs for the the type 2 diabetes. I want to thank Dr. James Marson, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing telemedicine, or bringing the specialist to the bedside. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And as always, thank you for listening.